Please welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Davendale. Hail fellows, well met. Now, we were looking around the internet the other day and what we thought this place really needs is more people talking about Star Trek because there's not an awful lot of that out there. I don't know if you've noticed, bit of a gap in the market. So we thought we'd have a look at some of the original cast's filmic outings over history in a fair amount of Star Trek films of the new generation and the uh, recent reboots and it's not exactly true to say that all long-running film series are worthy of attention. After all, there's been 18 National Lampoon's films. However, Star Trek has earned itself a place in popular culture thanks to its endless television syndication run in a way that we might not ever see again. Now that media has spread itself across so many channels and platforms that we're not all stuck with the same four channels of our youth. Uh, Today, as, as I mentioned, we'll just be taking a look at the original cast's big screen outings. So I'm not actually the world's biggest Star Trek fan, and I don't think you, you are either, Drew, but we, we couldn't help but watch pretty much all of them because it was uh, very much firmly ensconced in the sort of six o'clock BBC Two slot when you only yes, had a choice is. of four channels to watch, so you kind of wound up watching them all anywhere of absence of any other options. Yeah, it's always um, Wednesday or Thursday, I think, during the week, BBC Two, dinner time, you've done your homework from school, what else are you going to do? Yeah. It's like you could go out and sign and play, but it's Scotland. So that wasn't really an option unless you like rain and mud. Uh, so so a certain shared culture that Star Trek is saying, maybe one of the last kind of big entries that's able to become such a pop culture touchstone um, in a way that even popular things these days aren't ever really going to be able to do. So there's certainly some mileage in talking about them. Uh, so I guess... We'll just dive straight in to the first film, uh, the motion picture. If ever there was a misnamed picture. <laughs> yes, I suppose it's technically correct on some level. It is a motion picture, just... A stop motion picture, and more stop <laughs> than motion, but yes, technically it qualifies. So it took uh, 10 years from the demise of the original series for the strong syndication results to finally pull the trigger on a revival, eventually settling on this feature presentation, which no doubt came as an unpleasant surprise to all those working on the planned Phase 2 telly show, uh, but some small comfort could perhaps be gleaned from one of the proposed scripts being hastily repurposed, then seemingly rewritten daily to meet this strangely gestated production. Uh, the original cast return, who I suppose, for the uninitiated, we should introduce. Uh, this may be a bit of a hiding and nothing there. I'm sure most people know who the Star Trek cast are, but just in case you're, you haven't, uh, William Shatner, of course, plays Admiral James T. Kirk in this one, apparently promoted after the conclusion of the original series' five-year mission, and he's overseeing the refit of the Enterprise, currently undergoing a troubled shakedown, Um, After a transporter accident kills some of the new bridge staff, a suitable replacement science officer is found in the shape of Leonard Nimoy's Spock, rejoining DeForest Kelly's Dr. Bones McCoy, George Takai's helmsman Hikaru Sulu, Walter Koenig's tactical officer Pavel Chekhov, and Nichelle Nicole's communications officer Nyota Uhura, and of course, James Doohan's shonkily accented chief engineer Montgomery Scotty Scott. What? Hold on, hold the bus, hold the bus. Do you take exception to some of those descriptions? I wonder which one it might be. Are you suggesting that the Canadian actor James Doom doesn't do a superb Scottish accent? He does a superb Scotty accent, which I believe (laughs) is the nation that he came from, so yes, that's fine. (laughs) A very minor aside, Scott, before you continue, but Simon Pegg has been much derided for his accent in the 
recent Star Trek reboots. Mm. But really, I think he does a fantastic job of doing an impression of a Canadian, doing an impression of a Scotsman. <laughs> It's about as torturous as you'd expect, isn't it? Yeah, it's yes. the same results. The classic crew are joined by newcomers Stephen Collins as Captain Decker of the newly defeated Enterprise, who is pretty much immediately asserted by Kirk, and Persis Cambata as Ilya, a navigation officer and former lover of Decker, who, for reasons we'll get into in a minute, doesn't really get to show off her full capabilities. Tensions immediately rise when they're forced to respond to an urgent situation despite their unreadiness, and Decker must hurriedly countermand an order from Kirk that would have destroyed the ship due to Kirk's unfair familiarity with the state of the half-finished vessel. This prompts some questioning and soul-searching from Kirk and his buddies who wonder if Kirk's as happy working behind a desk as he says he is. Spoiler, he is not. But that has to go on the subplot back burner as they approach the source of that their urgent situation. A strange crowd of energy travelling directly towards Earth, destroying everything in its path. Intercepting the phenomena, they find themselves attacked by a strange probe that seems to annihilate Ilya and then promptly returns her, or, well, this strange cloned version of her anyway, one that's now acting as an emissary for one V'ger. A distraught Decker attempts to simultaneously get information from whoever Ilya is while trying to reawaken her original self that he desperately hopes is in there somewhere, while the rest of the crew try and figure some kind of way out of there. After Spock takes a 2001-inspired trippy spacewalk to the centre of the cloud, he discovers that V'ger is a machine that's become self-aware and sentient, after inadvisedly mind-belting with it. It was a probe sent by humanity, well, sometime around now I'd imagine, to gather information but it was believed lost but much later it drifted by an alien race who massively upgraded it and sent it on its way back home, gathering so much information that it developed sentience, which isn't quite how artificial intelligence works. Otherwise, you better be getting worried about these 8 terabyte hard drives that have got knocking about the place. Oh, I think we should really be worried about the imminent conquest of the world by Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, well, according to the Wikipedia page, which does a far better job of explaining <laughs> what's going on than the film itself does, um, having completed its mission, it lacks any sort of focus and is striking out in frustration having no sense of purpose. The crew converge on the original probe as V'ger demands that its creator appear to receive its transmission of data, which somehow, don't ask me, translates into it merging with Decker and zipping off through their dimension, leaving Kirk and Crow scratching their heads and saying, well, that was a thing. <laughs> so, to be polite about it, the entire main story is hot garbage, if that. <laughs> it might even just be cold garbage. Um, it's stretched unbearably thin over the running time, and basically anything to do with V'ger is scientifically illiterate and dramatically bereft. The only reason this scrapes by into watchability narrative-wise is the confident, assured performances from a cast who know these characters inside out, and the subplot about Kirk's doubts about his return to captaining, which is a welcome piece of character development in a movie not otherwise teeming with it. Now, this does not look like a $46 million be-budgeted film, but that's a number that's more a consequence of the unusual pre-production period, which is not to say that a great deal of money was not thrown at the film, especially at Doug Trumbull's uh, special effects house, called in at the last minute to complete the model shots, which admittedly look great for the time, just as well as you'll be seeing a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they, they very much subscribe in this film, or Robert Wise particularly subscribes in this film, to the Stanley Kubrick ethos from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's We've thought up all of these things from space and designed all these things, and by God, are we going to show them to you? Yes, we are going to pan around the outside of the Enterprise for 18 hours, and you are going to like it. Well, I don't like it. It's, it's, it's tough to recommend this to modern audiences, or, well, audiences generally. It moves at a snail's pace through a void of material, and the small touches that can be appreciated are pretty few and far between. Uh, of the original series of films, I actually like this one the least which is probably not to say that it's necessarily the worst, but we'll get on to that. 
Others at least shoot for something and miss, but this largely spends its time not really doing very much at all, which makes it <laughs> boring, and that is something up with which I shall not put. Yes, it's, you know, technically looks quite nice in places, I guess. Hmm. It does. Their models are nice, yeah. again, which is good because you see them a lot, an <laughs> awful lot, and yes, maybe it's not the worst, but compared to, say, the ones where they invoke supernatural deities, at least that's entertainingly dumb. <laughs> this is just, frankly, awful. I actually found almost nothing of merit in this film at all. In fact, the most interesting thing that I can say about this film is you could just spend an awful lot of time wondering how this film, where nothing happens and cost $46 million, came out two years after Star Wars, where at the time everything happened and included in creating a whole new special effects company, which only cost $11 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. $35 million more two years later to have a substantially worse film in every possible way. Yeah. Okay. It's not really a fair uh, reflection of the film's budget, I think, in the end, because that is like probably about a decade of pre production costs for various other Star Trek offshoots that kind of got wound up into the budget for this one. Mm. Uh, so it's not really a $46 million film, but it still had a good chunk of money spent on it. And yeah, it doesn't do an awful lot with that. You know, some nice model shots aside, but even then, not really much nicer than, as you mentioned, 2001, which was a good few years before this. Yes, not really value for money on many scales. No, there are a couple of interesting ideas in there. The idea of artificial intelligence, just badly handled here. The idea of trying to seek your creator, that sort of thing. Mildly interesting ideas that they do absolutely nothing with. Yeah. Because it's just brainless. Yes. I, I really don't have much more to say about it. It's, it's not even bad enough for me to get angry about. It's just very, very boring. Yeah, it's a very boring film. It simply film. does very little for me. <laughs> Um, as I alluded to, one of the one of these films I can just sort of dislike in a way because it's just so daft. But in this one, it's like, oh yeah, I saw that. I almost fell asleep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't merit much more discussion for me, unless particularly for a f- the first what hour of this film is an absolute drag. I don't know how how anyone thought this would be a good pacing uh, concept. Just have so little happen in that early stretch, and even it's not even just the model shots too. It's the interior sets. They seem determined to show it's like, oh, good. I think this is the cafeteria. Oh, we're still here. <laughs> okay. okay. No, no, we're not. No, okay. We're staying in the cafeteria, but I guess okay. Are they on tea break? Where's everybody go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess regardless of the quality, uh, which I don't think is. Un- to unusual opinion that we've had there, I don't think this was particularly well regarded, but it did make quite a bit of money. Everyone was happy enough to see the Star Trek casting on the big screen, and yeah, it did lead in to the second film, Wrath of Khan, which thankfully is a, a rather more highly regarded. Uh, Drew, would you like to give us a bit of a rundown on that one? Yeah, so you mentioned the money that the motion picture made there, despite not getting much critical acclaim. And fortunately, if surprisingly, Star Trek the motion picture was successful enough to warrant a sequel, though series creator Gene Roddenberry did find himself booted out of his own work um, (laughs) as a result and the Academy Award nominated scribe Nicholas Meyer was brought on board to co-write and direct. The story of Wrath of Khan takes its origin from an episode of the television series called Space Seed in which a group of genetically engineered superhumans were discovered by the Enterprise as they passed their sentences in suspended animation aboard a prison ship. Foolishly awoken, the group's leader Khan Noonien Singh 
tries to destroy the Enterprise and after finally overcoming this most dangerous adversary, Kirk banishes Khan and his crew to an uninhabited planet to live out their lives as Ubermenschen, safely separated from the rest of galactic civilization. In the film, Commander Chekhov is on secondment to another Starfleet vessel, researching a barren planet to be used as the testing ground for a new terraforming device called Genesis, when he unexpectedly encounters Khan and soon finds himself being used to lure Captain Kirk to the planet so that Khan may extract his revenge. While Kirk will ultimately be successful in defeating Khan, it will not come without great cost. In marked contrast to the motion picture, which is largely about a challenge to see how many minutes of a major film can be devoted to lingering but sterile pans around models, (laughs) The Wrath of Khan is about friendship and ageing and death which are pretty damn universal themes, which broadened the appeal of the film greatly. As for the rest of the plot, it's more just a a battle of will and of wits between Kirk and Khan, and at the same time there's a subplot going on about Kirk showing his disregard for the rules and the fact that he has a son, and that all ties into the theme of ageing. What perhaps more interesting is just how different this was from, from that first film, and how it actually latched on very much to the potential that was there in Star Trek, which obviously had been there in the television series. It's why it became so popular and then was more or less entirely abandoned in the first uh, transfer to the big screen. Uh, One of the most significant things in Star Trek 2 was the influence of Nicholas Meyer, which would persist through most, if not all, of the subsequent films and television series. By no means a Star Trek aficionado, or even a fan, by his own admission, he was only even mildly aware of Star Trek and had never even seen an episode. Meyer brought in an outsider's perspective and, perhaps crucially, an associated irreverence for the franchise. He urged a redesign of the uniforms to make them decidedly more martial and, as much as the budget allowed, saw the Enterprise become more nautical-looking. Meyer himself saw Star Trek as being like the tales of Admiral Hornblower in space. Though, of course, this film in particular borrows liberally from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. And, of course, the movie's climax and denouement are, more or less, a cosmic submarine battle. It's quite well known that at the end of this film, the great Mr. Spock dies trying to save the Enterprise. And, cheaply aped in the second J.J. Abrams reboot film, there came the very famous cry of Kirk's of, Can... Flawless. <laughs> Flawless. Yes, yes. I, I, I am wasted here. I should be on the big screen myself. <laughs> At that uh, moment had, for some, in some manner, during filming, gotten out of, certainly word had gotten out of Spock's death, and numerous angry fans protested, as they are wanting to do, writing letters and even paying for newspaper adverts. This and poor reactions to test screenings led to the ending of the film being lightened with the shot of Spock's casket on the Genesis planet and Leonard Nimoy's voiceover being late additions. And Meyer also thought that for those who had heard of Spock's death, they would be lulled into a false sense of security when they saw his death during the Kobayashi Maru sequence at the beginning of the film. Uh, While it was probably necessary for Spock's death not to be final if the series were to continue, that Hollywood need for all films to have a happy-ish ending often does not serve the story and it certainly undermines the emotional heft of this film's ending. Other things that did work better in this film though, which is more or less everything compared to what went before, included the fact that Meyer's lack of reverence for the source material was one of the crucial elements that made Can work, where the no motion picture did not. 
particularly with its associated acknowledgement that it might be nice if the humans in this gig seemed, you know, human, <laughs> and with a welcome dash of humour and wit. Starting with really rather a lot in the debit column, this sequel had its work cut out for it to erase the memory of the previous film, but instead of simply doing its best to atone, The Wrath of Khan is widely considered to be the best Star Trek film, and it's certainly a hugely different beast from what came before. All of the returning cast seems so much more relaxed, and while they all are all returning to very familiar roles, seem both better and more comfortable in this outing, and there is considerably more chemistry among the cast, maybe because things aren't happening in slow motion this time. Joining them and spicing things up a little is Mexican actor Ricardo Montalban, who had played Khan in Space Seed, and while the character does perhaps border on camp at times, he is a charismatic and hugely watchable antagonist, something else solely lacking in the motion picture. The idea of what is for most of the film a rather nebulous unknown as your main villain doesn't work so well. Mm. But otherwise, yeah, this was massively successful, still very entertaining today, contains some of the most classic moments in Star Trek history, and it's the more or less pulled a complete 180 from the 1979 film in just three years. It was all the better for it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to think that Roddenberry, who essentially had almost no influence on the films from this point on, um, he complained about all of them, and his, <laughs> and his notes were saying, yes, very good, Gene, and then those were immediately filed into a round, <laughs> a round bin at the desk. Um, he must have hated this because, I mean, the whole first thing was... It's almost his, his ideal thing where all the humans have evolved past the point of having you know petty dramas and everything like that. But the problem, when you've when you've done that, you've you've basically got rid of rid of all the opportunity for drama in a thing. Exactly. Yes. I think it makes humans humans. Roddenberry thought, oh, we'll, we'll just have got rid of that by the time we get to the future. It's like, well, yes, yeah. which is based on hope more than any logical through line from the current state of humans yeah. from this point on there's markedly more life to proceedings and yeah this this is i think certainly the best of them lots of lovely little moments that i think have really sort of made a mark on on culture things like the kobayashi maru test i think most people actually know what that is despite it being a relatively small part of a, a now quite old film but it's mm-hmm. still something that uh, most people would recognize what 20 uh, uh, 34 34 yes 34 years after this gosh notable for me i think in having another one of those little things that you look at now and think that is just stupid but terrified me as a child the little um worm things the earworm yeah the earworm yeah. That, that kind of allows Nudian Singh to control various members of them yeah. terrified me as a kid it looks kind of rubbish now along with quite a few other effects this one was another one where the, the budget was chopped down quite a bit they were down to 11 million I think on this one the problem is that with the, the thing you mentioned Scott the little bug thing with the worm is yes it looks really shonky it's kind of low cost stop motion animation or mm. oh, maybe a puppet actually so that kind of takes the edge off, but the idea of it, yeah. actually, yes, yeah, very scary. And something that Babylon 5 would actually use mm-hmm. in later years, the idea of a wee thing wrapped around you, the brainstem controlling things. And it's like, that's a, it's a creepy idea. Yeah. It works pretty well mm-hmm. there. Um, and, you know, for all I want to criticise the effects, and it might have looked quite shonky back in 82, but um, time's a bit of a leveller on that score. I think it doesn't really look all that terrible when you compare it to the rest of them, because... <laughs> You know, I think they made some reasonably acceptable choices in kind of knowing where to focus the budget for the special effects, mm-hmm. which is something they notably don't do so well in the films from this point on. And as you say, Khan is just a great foil for Kirk. You know, he's 
resourceful, capable and driven, and if he hadn't been driven a little too close to the edge of sanity by his own ordeals, he'd have put money on him beating Kirk. So there is, does actually seem for a long time where Kirk might actually lose this little battle of wits. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, if you listen, the the commentary for Wrath of Khan is particularly interesting, actually. Uh, Nicholas Meyer's actually a pretty entertaining guy to listen to. Mm. And he talks a lot about this, and he's talking about, you know, if you... If you have your hero always winning or looking like he's always going to win, then or being perfect, then you basically lose all adversity for him to overcome. And it's overcoming adversity that makes drama interesting. Yeah. That's very much evident here that Kirk's making mistakes. He basically gets caught with his trousers down at one point by Can. He's made a mistake. He's almost lost his ship and he needs to recover from that. Also, you mentioned the special effects too and the budget being down mm. to the point where they had to try and reuse as much as they could yeah. from the original yeah. film. So they've taken bits of the set, redressed them, even as much as they couldn't change the uniforms quite so much as Nicholas Meyer wanted because they had to even reuse the uniforms. They didn't have the money for that. Yeah. So it was a dye job on the uniforms, that sort of thing. Um, some clever use of lighting, um, just taking what had been the Enterprise bridge, putting it in a different order, and ah, suddenly you have the bridge of the Reliant. There's a lot of real cost-cutting there, but it's something in Nicholas Maya again mentions it quite a lot, though he says that it's true that the adversity or um, restriction makes creativity thrive. If you have all the money to play with, like, you know, for instance, where you could create some sort of giant base rabbit frog thing that steps in um, doo doo, um, you could just, if you have all that money, you could just ruin things. But uh, unfortunately, they didn't hear. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really good example of. Well, low-budget, high-budget filmmaking, if you know what I mean. Because um, mm-hmm. for all that recycling that, that's been done, I don't think you notice it in the slightest. I'm sure in part that's just because it's actually a good story and you're I'm more interested in actually watching the story unfold and the characters and all these kind of things than I am inspecting the backgrounds, which is what you did in the first film because that was what it was showing you in some great yeah, That's all there was to do, yeah. yes. And again, it's one of those things that looks pretty dodgy nowadays, but when you look where they did spend the money, one of the very first external contracts for ILM mm. was for the scene of showing how the Genesis planet would transform. Yeah. And that, yes, it looks so terrible now, but that at the time was a real sort of wow moment. And that, because you're going kind of to be showing the power and potential of this weapon, then yeah, that, that was a sensible place to use the money, not on like yet another model shot. Yeah. Um, and again, one thing that really helps it for me is that can... And this is something that the recent Star Trek films have tried to take on board. I don't think they've done quite as good a job of it, but Khan's actually got a point. You know, he he is justifiably upset by what his treatment at the hands of Starfleet, and he's got a solid reason for wanting to take revenge on Starfleet. Mm. Uh, focusing on Kirk in particular is probably his downfall, but his motivations are logical and believable and you know relatable in a great many respects yes and also he's been scraping by on a on basically a desert planet mm. with no resources for 10 or 15 years and that's that'll get to you yeah <laughs> so uh, i think there's not really a question this is the best of the star trek films we'll talk about mm-hmm. in this one and i would certainly agree if you're only going to watch one of them this is definitely the one you should be doing yeah it's a film that i've watched a number of times not religiously but i'm sure i must have watched this when it's on telly and things like that, by about, oh, I, I guess, getting up to 10 times or something like that. And I still enjoy it every time. You know, it's it's just one of these endlessly rewatchable things. I think it, it does manage to uh, sort of distill the essence of all that uh, Star Trek uh, series and 
make it into the kind of almost its purest form. Or, mm-hmm. or, no, that's actually not accurate, but certainly its most entertaining form that it could be. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely enjoy this very much. I have slight quibbles about the ending, but I guess we'll get onto that when it's talk about their search for Spock. Yeah, it's still another thing I would mention is with Roddenberry not any longer being involved mm. after um, the Wrath of Khan and the the change. I mean, the idea that Starfleet was a peacekeeping and exploratory organization they tried to stick with, but it became a little more militaristic after this and kind of yeah. necessary. But because also, again, this is something Nicholas Meyer spoken about directly, you know, it's very much felt that Starfleet was all about gunboat diplomacy yeah. because they would basically rock up to a planet, tell them what they were doing wrong <laughs> and instill their own better, perfect order, yeah. which obviously very much was the order of the United States, <laughs> whatever that had been at any particular point in time. <laughs> and... Yeah, the idea that everybody was peaceful in the future, just there, there, there was no historical precedent for that being the case. That Roddenberry was an idealist, mm. but I think he was a bit blinkered. Yeah. And things are better, great, because for instance just now, as much as the news would make you think otherwise, by far the most peaceful period in the last like 10,000 years of human existence. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much less violence and war than there's, there's ever been, um, and certainly in terms of percentage people dying. So things are getting better, and you can see that there are nice ideals to have in there but there's still going to be people who want more or want something that isn't theirs or different species and things this made everything a bit darker yeah. and everything that followed including for instance the next generation etc is better for it yes so and you did mention the ending of the film there scott you had an issue with but talking of endings and contrary to the standalone nature of the television series, Wrath of Khan's ending also set up a story arc that would carry over for, in fact, the next two films in the series. Mm. So shall we continue with that story arc in the search for Spock? Yes, which follows on near enough directly from the previous film. And we re- rejoin the Kang back on Earth, still grieving for the loss of Spock, although Lieutenant Savick another Vulcan who's now been recast as Robin Curtis from uh, Kirstie Alley in the second film. Uh, So she and David Marcus, Kirk's son, have transferred to the science vessel Grissom, named, of course, after William Peterson's character in CSI Las Vegas. They're busy investigating the planet that was formed after Khan set off the Genesis device in Nebula at the end of the last film, which also marks the final resting place of Spock's body, or, well, it should have done, but it appears that the body's gone walkabouts. It turns out that this, and the increasing instability of the planet, is a side effect of David using the banned substance Protomatter, renowned for producing the powerful but unpredictable effects that are demanded by the script at any particular point. (laughs) Uh, So Savick and David discover that Spock had been resurrected, sort of, in a rapidly ageing child's body, but he has no memory or personality from his previous life. Back home, Kirk and company discover that one of Spock's last acts was transferring his Catra to Dr. McCoy, which is why he's currently behaving erratically. For the uninitiated, a Catra is a bit like an iCloud backup of your brain, but with a crotchety old geezer as a backup server rather than an Apple (laughs) facility, thus making it far more reliable. Ooh, sick burn. But unfortunately, Starfleet are trying to hush up the Genesis incident as they don't want the Klingons playing Sonic the Hedgehog, and they're also looking to decommission the (laughs) aged Enterprise, and so bar Kirk from pursuing the matter any further. Kirk accepts this with the good grace that he's known for, stealing the Enterprise and sabotaging the new flagship such that it cannot follow, and belting off to the 
Genesis Planet. There they are met by a Klingon bird of prey, craptained by Christopher Lloyd's Cruz, who has heard communications chatter about the increased colour palette and blast processing of the Genesis device, and is infuriated that the Klingons must continue to play the likes of Alex Kidd and Shinobi World rather than the Revenge of Shinobi. It's barbaric in comparison. Cruj rightly recognises the destructive potential of the device and is resolved to move it from Federation to Klingon hands and, well, the man has a point. It turns out that going up against a wildly understaffed and semi-obsolete Enterprise isn't too difficult, especially with the element of surprise afforded by a cloaking device, and he cripples the Enterprise. By this point, Cruz has already taken Savik, David and Spock hostage, and as Kirk refuses to cooperate, he has David kills, which pretty much seals Krug's fate. You shouldn't have made it personal. And before you know it, they're having a fist fight in the lava fields of a rapidly falling apart planet, and Kirk's tricked most of the Klingons into beaming on board Enterprise a few seconds before it self-destructs, and the Enterprise crew has taken over the Klingon vessel and are headed off to Vulcan to spot well Spock's soul back into his body, that apparently being a thing that can be done. Now, uh, perhaps fittingly, given the title, this instalment was directed by Leonard Nimoy from a script finished off by executive producer Harv Bennett. And in a lot of ways, these two must share the blame for the search for Spock, uh, (laughs) not quite hanging all together that well as a film. Now, I don't actually think there's all that much here that's outright bad on the atomic level, with the minor exception of Cruz's ill-considered pet puppet thing, but there's just not a great deal of cohesiveness to this piece. Chris Lloyd does his best with the material, but the overblown way the character's written comes across as an attempt to recapture the glory of Khan's reception, and a more contrasting character might well have proved more impactful. That said, the almost operatic way Krug's been written is probably an attempt to graft a character onto someone that doesn't have the screen time to properly develop one, and indeed the entire Klingon contingent feels rather like an afterthought, shoehorned in to give Kirk someone to punch in the final act. And I think there's an argument uh, for excising this external threat entirely, after all there's this brand new rapidly decaying planet that could host all sorts of environmental hazards that might have made for an ultimately more interesting experience had they fully committed to the search element of the title. After all, the film is rightly mostly concerned with battering the undo button for Spock's death and as such perhaps doesn't really need to have a subplot with Klingons to make things a bit more conventional. Now that said, we're talking about a film with a larger budget than this, as cinematographer Charles Correll was already concerned that due to budget constraints, essentially nothing was shot on location, and, well, he was right, as none of the sound stages look all that convincing. It might have just about passed muster on a TV show 15 years before this was made, but it looks a bit tacky in 1984. Indeed, despite the increased budget over the Rafa can, this, I'd argue, looks like the cheapest of the series. Not to overplay that, it's not all that bad, but it doesn't help with believability, and given the plot is already concerned with bringing a dude back from the dead, uh, you'd have to be a very forgiving viewer indeed to get the end of this film with your belief still suspended, and I'm sure a lot of people were just wishing they simply didn't kill Spock at the end of the last film. It's tough to judge the ending in retrospect. The destruction of the iconic Enterprise vessel should have had a big impact, but viewed from today, that's basically part of Starfleet's standard operating procedures, isn't it? They just keep destroying that vessel all the time. This perhaps sounds as I've been a bit more harsh on the search for Spock than I intend. It's certainly got its problems, but I don't think they get in the way of enjoying it when watching it quite the same way that it does when you start talking about it. This one, I'd argue, probably worth watching once, but I cannot imagine that it's on heavy rotation, even for die-hard Trekkies. Well, I find this one largely forgettable. Mm. I think, for me, one of the big problems with it is that when you have Christopher Lloyd as Cruz, is Christopher Lloyd and I like Christopher Lloyd a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't like Christopher Lloyd a lot as a scheming villainous Klingon. Yeah. Now, to be fair to him, he does his best. Yeah. He does seem believably 
angry and belligerent okay that's good he's still christopher lloyd though and that always just takes me out of it not even so much a typecasting thing i think it's more just a a type of role for me rather than being the one person like being doc brown or something so i just realized how stupid it sounded to say it's not typecasting but it is the type (laughs) but that may be what that word really means (laughs) (laughs) i think maybe the problem is that for a lot of star trek's history the klingons are just very weakly motivated it's like, uh, we're, we're angry and we shoot things. Uh, oh, no, no, that's it. That's their entire raison d'etre. And that, for me, just leaves me just wanting something a bit more substantial. Mm. It's something that's addressed a bit more in the TV series, maybe because they have a little more time. They can explore the Klingons a bit more. But even there, with all that added time, they don't come much more than their misogynistic, super masculine people who just like to kill and shoot. That's not very interesting yeah. uh, again maybe when it comes to the television series the different alien races they may tend to really represent i guess maybe particular bad traits of humans so the klingons are warlike romulans are scheming mm. etc so when you have the tv series they're a bit more mixed and a bit more varied so that's okay in the films um certainly these first six films largely the only enemies are Klingons and they're so thinly drawn that it's really hard to get behind that as an enemy. Yeah, the whole planet of the hats thing is a real problem for me with Star Trek in all of its incarnations, apart possibly from Deep Space Nine, but the way you say so, that the Ferengi are all to a man and woman obsessed with money. All the Klingons are obsessed with warriors. <laughs> yeah, That's there's just... no nuance is the problem. Yeah, it's That's absolutely it. daft to think that you've got this, this whole society, the whole planet, the whole culture where everyone's dominated by one trait is absolutely ludicrous. And I don't know why they yeah. were thinking to get away with that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, because like I said, I mean, in the TV, it's still not good, but in the TV series, it kind of works if you if you think about it. It's like, yeah, they only have the, like the one trait, but it's, they represent the bad bits of humanity and are split up between species, and it doesn't bother me as much there. Hmm. But yes, in the films, when you have nothing else to balance it, it becomes really, really kind of lame. Yeah, it, it, it's just not particularly believable in a in a no. series that, that's already got enough unbelievable elements in it that it doesn't need the additional handicap. I know. It's, it always it always works. The the kind of thing I tend to think about in that regard too is. It's like the Klingons. Every single one of them wants to be a war hero. And that's the, that's every single Klingon. And like they all want to have glory and honour. And I'm thinking, yeah, but who mops the corridors? <laughs> or but, but what about the... But you, you, you keep on pounding on this thing that all Klingons are warlike and it's all about honour and battle. What about the guy that designed the ship? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or the man who, or man or woman who created the computer code or whoever designed the uniforms for Klingons and... <laughs> They really all warlike too, but no, we'll just pretend they all just magic into existence and everybody else is a fighter. <laughs> There's no depth whatsoever to the alien races in Star Trek, and it is a big, big problem when you only have one at a time. That's really the big issue for me, and you, you say it's, you feel it's shoehorned in, even that element. Certainly it's the the motivation there, just, there's nothing to it for me, so I'm watching, why, why are you doing this? Go... Go to home and watch a film or something instead of just shooting people. It's more fun, really. <laughs> for the rest of it, though, search for spot. It's just largely forgettable for me. It's you know, I've seen worse, but the really dodgy-looking sets will really bother me. I find it very unpleasant to be in those locations during that film. Right, yeah. The clearly small places and clearly made of polystyrene and plastic and kind of oppressive colours, and I just I find it an unpleasant experience. Yeah, I think there's 
there's actually a much better film in there as I say if it, if it was just exploring this planet which you could do today with CG I think effectively but yeah I suppose at the time that would have been a substantially more expensive film mm-hmm. because you couldn't uh, stretch the which is a shame I think it is to the detriment of the uh, the thing as a whole but uh, what can you do you can only make your money go so far mm-hmm. so I guess we can move on to the next part of the arc with the Star Trek 4 The Voyage Home yes Star Trek 4 The Voyage Home as you say aka the one where the crew go on a road trip, <laughs> a.k.a. Star Trek Four, the caper movie, a.k.a. the one with the whales. My personal preference is the one where they go back in time in that. <laughs> <laughs> a huge, enigmatic and powerful probe slash alien slash spaceship slash thing moves through Federation space headed for Earth, sowing chaos and power cuts wherever it goes. When it reaches Earth, it directs massively powerful communications at the oceans, causing planet-wide panic and disruption which threatened to cripple the seat of the Federation unless someone, and I'm not saying who that could possibly be, but unless someone can find a way to deal with or respond to the probe. Fortunately, our heroes aren't on Earth. They are where we left them at the end of the previous film, on Vulcan, with their seized Klingon bird of prey. As they return to Earth to face the music, because remember, they weren't really given permission to go to Genesis in the last film, they in fact Stole the Enterprise. Naughty. Naughty Admiral. Um, <laughs> and ruined the no-claims bonus on it as well. Deciding that, yes, facing the music is the, the upright and adult thing to do. They're heading back, but are warned uh, to stay away from the planet. Monitoring the probe's activities, the crew determine that the alien thingy is trying to communicate with humpback whales. Something it is finding a little difficult because those zany humans killed them all centuries ago. Yay, Team Human. We won. <laughs> Being, therefore, much in need of a whale, they set off to find one in the only place they can, the past. Inventing some ludicrous mechanism by which to reach this destination, if you don't remember or don't know, it's going very fast, which is apparently enough to do it. If you go very fast around the sun, you go back three centuries. Yeah, you go the wrong way around the sun, that's how it works. Yes. Um, Unless you're Superman, in this case you go the wrong way around the planet. Yes, if you spin, if you spin the planet backwards, time yeah. goes backwards. <laughs> That's how it works, yeah. yeah. That's why Einstein said. It's more or less the same mechanism, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, this ludicrous mechanism invented, the crew find, and using it, the crew find themselves in 1980 San Francisco and set about trying to find them a whale. This sets the scene for all sorts of fish-out-of-water antics and some heavy-handed, if indisputable, environmental messages as a bewildered crew, a not-so-half-as-cunning-as-he-thinks-he-is-Kirk, and a still-recovering Spock, ride city buses, fail to blend in linguistically, steal photons from nuclear vessels, <laughs> and boost a whale, like you do. Part of me thinks that this outing should be pretty much intolerable. The subtle-as-a-brick-conservation theme, Kirk's awkward attempts at swearing, the now legendary scene where Scotty picks up the Max Mouse and talks into it. <laughs> Computer. Computer. Yet it's done with warmth and fun, and I really rather enjoy this film. It's also lighter, both figuratively and literally, than what went before, and the extensive location shooting and use of actual, honest-to-goodness daylight it's a breath of fresh air after the oppressive confines and often shonky sets of warships and polystyrene planets. This is an easygoing, if fundamentally silly, outing which stands apart from all of the other feature films, and pretty much all involved seem to be having a good time. 
which is crucial for a film so outside of the Star Trek norm to work. Leonard Nimoy in particular seems both game and relaxed, impressively so given that it is also he helming again. Perhaps the search for Spock allowed him to lose his nerves and find his style. Though a screenplay partly authored by producer Harv Bennett and Nicholas Meyer, who worked so successfully together in Wrath of Khan, may well have helped, as will the considerably greater creative freedom he was afforded. Meyer's work in the screenplay gives the film the kind of humour it needs and the director wanted, and allows it to be no guns, no death, no villain, but not no fun. Now there are episodes of the Star Trek television series that um, have a similar sort of feel to this, largely based on the success of this, I think. There's a couple of Deep Space Nine episodes in particular, one where the Ferengi visit Earth in the 1950s, in sort of Roswell and New Mexico time era, and time era? That's a well-constructed sentence, well done me. And also the famous Tribbles episode, and they clearly are, are basing um, those episodes on how well this worked. It's, yes, it's a very kind of silly caper movie that because it's just handled so well and with the right tone throughout that nobody's taking it too seriously but not to the point where the characters are feel so out of place or wrong it means it works and it's entertaining. What I suspect would not have helped this film work would have been Eddie Murphy who was <laughs> apparently quite strongly attached to appear in the project. Eddie Murphy in Star Trek. That would have been interesting. But, uh, it's no, no conceptually daft to the Whoopi Goldberg, so <laughs> it might have worked. <laughs> Maybe. But Eddie Murphy chose to film The Golden Child instead. No, I've never heard of it either. And mm. Murphy's putative role eventually became the whaleologist. It's a word. Jillian <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tone, played by... Perfectly prominent, yes, thank you. Played by Catherine Hicks. Uh, Hicks' role is pretty anodyne. But she acquits herself well enough for all that, and is given a few moments to stretch herself, particularly when remonstrating passionately about the whales. Everyone else is in this by this stage in a very, very familiar groove, but the the chemistry between the cast works well because of that rather than in spite of it, and it feels like they're basically having a Star Trek holiday from Star Trek. Um, hmm. And it's a different approach and really doesn't fit in with any of the other films it's not like anything else at all but it's it's entertaining the salary demands of the cast for this film however um, particularly William Shatner who originally wasn't going to return as Kirk at all in part paved the way for Star Trek The Next Generation to actually begin on TV with its new and importantly cheap cast um, <laughs> who would eventually replace them so maybe be careful what you wish for you start asking for more money but all that said it's fluff but it's good-hearted, entertaining fluff, and it's definitely one I would recommend seeing far more than The Search for Spock, anyway. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun film for fans of the series, I think, and the much lighter tone makes it more palatable, possibly, as an entry point for people on the fence about watching any of them, but it's probably the slightest of the, this original cast series of films. I've never found anything new to like when I've rewatched this, which is not to say that it's not worth watching once, but um, it's, it's very slender in terms of everything that it's trying to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I used the word caper movie, but that's really what it is. It's a Star Trek caper movie. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's no drama or suspense in it. You know, the, there's no occasion that I can think of where anything is treated as a significant obstacle as much as it's treated as a way to bring a few laughs out of a situation. 
Um, uh, thankfully, most of these attempts land, and it does wind up being pretty funny throughout its running time. I think um, that's but, quite legitimate to do, though, because you have the same cast returning. Rather than taking the same cast and basically making them do the same thing every time, hmm. it's just to change things up a little. I mean, if it were like the same universe, different people, then it would feel so out of place when it's the same cast and they've just come from films where everybody's dying. Yeah. It just <laughs> it lightens things a little. I've no complaints of it that really make sense given the sort of film that it's shooting to do. It has its remit in mind and I think it achieves it pretty well. So in that respect, it's pretty successful. There are things that annoy me about it. I think it would be... I think someone should at some point comment that this is basically the same plot as the first film. You could at least have made a slight throwaway reference to it. I think at some point someone should have perhaps thought about, hmm, space whales. What well, that's a thing then. <laughs> you know, surely it warranted a little bit of examination as to why <laughs> there there are space whales apparently. No, no, that just sails off into the oblivion and is forgotten about forevermore. I mean, come on. It's, it's space whales. <laughs> there are aspects that I wish that it had made a little bit of an attempt to go into a bit more detail of, but yeah, I suppose this film is not really the place for it. It is not even remotely a serious piece of science fiction by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, as a caper film, perfectly well worth watching. And uh, yeah, it's definitely worth watching at least once, particularly if you've seen, if you know the cast and you're, you're familiar with them at this point to see them sort of not exactly go against type, but sort of bump up against slightly different challenges than it would usually get. It's well worth seeing. Yeah, I mean, there are. It's not without its faults. I mean, the space whale thing, I, I tend to, for this film, just completely forgive and not think about. It's considered um, giant floating MacGuffin. But <laughs> there are other bits where it sort of goes beyond caper into farce movie, like the escape from the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I think just because it's built up so much goodwill with me, and it, it really is fairly consistently funny. Um, Leonard Nimoy in particular, because he, he's so deadpan for it, but it makes that character... Almost knowingly funny, but not just on the right side of not going over that line. Yeah. And it builds up a lot of fun. And then every one of the main cast, apart from, I suppose even Dr. McCoy, because he's going around calling everybody savages because they're cutting people open and things. Yeah. Every member of the main cast it, it is given a wee bit of time on their own to, to deliver a funny line or have a funny experience. And it's all fairly evenly spread around. Yeah. Um, and it just so it keeps on going quite well and doesn't overstay its welcome. Yes, so that arc finally concluded. And after having saved the Earth, not really been in a position to be punished too heavily by Starfleet, things should more or less be back to normal. Captain Kirk should be aboard the Enterprise, the crew should be back together. And what's going to happen next? Oh, Kirk fights God. Right, <laughs> yes, okay. I'm glad we're we're just keeping things in a nice slow upward slope after saving the space whales. Okay, so so Scott, tell us about the one where Kirk fights God. Yeah, Star Trek V, the final frontier. Although there's nothing final about it. Uh, Bill Shatner takes the reins of this outing. The moment we've all been waiting for, <laughs> or at least the moment that he was waiting for with a script developed from one of his ideas. The Nimbus 3 project was a dream given form, its goal to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens can work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, a home away from home, for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all along the night. 
Hang on, that's not right. That's Babylon 5, isn't it? But Nimbus 3 is basically the same idea, but with Klingons, Romulans, and human settlers uh, theoretically banding together to build an idyllic new world, but the planet turned out to be a barely inhabitable dust bowl, where the prevailing aesthetic is very much Wild West with touchscreens. Used as a dumping ground for criminals and washed-up diplomats, it's in no condition to defend itself when a small cult-like force ultimately revealed to be under the control of Spock's half-brother Cybok, played by Lawrence Duckenbill, shows up and takes over the joint. Taking the ambassadors hostage, they demand attention, and it falls to Captain Kirk and the Funky Bunch to cut short their show leave, complete with the perilous mountain climbing and gravity boot rescuing. But on reaching Nimbus 3, Cybok reveals its true intentions, wanting to hijack the Enterprise and head off to the centre of the galaxy, passing through a supposedly impenetrable barrier with the intent of finding Shakari, the cradle of creation, and along with it, God. Uh, Cybok has rejected the strict compliance with logic and the suppression of emotion that the rest of the Vulcans have somehow managed to impose on the entire planet, uh, which saw him exiled from his homeworld and his family. He's now using his mental powers to revisit the defining moments of pain and upset in people's lives, and helps them to deal with this, which for reasons not entirely explained makes people compliant with Cybok's scheme. Kirk's having no part of this procedure, claiming his pain defines him as though he's a character of Hellraiser or something, uh, but Cybok's party trick convinces the other key members of the Enterprise to go along with it, apart from Spock, whose essential response of, yes, and, <laughs> seems to be the only appropriate one for everyone, but well, hey-ho. Uh, so with that pair suitably restrained, they go off to Shakari. Unfortunately, the effects budget runs out along the way. They find, at least as far as the script's concerned, an alien that takes on the aspects of divinity to trick them into releasing him, with only Kirk seeing through the ruse with his penetrating question of what does God need with a starship, uh, which angers God and shows the others the error of his ways, and they try to get the heck out of there. And unfortunately, it's a horrendously cheap sequence, replete with polystyrene rock monsters and special effects that are basically a floodlight on a stick to represent <laughs> the supposed creator of all things. And it's very much an ending where the reach has exceeded the grasp, and it's a pretty amateurish, farcical note to end a film on. And, you know, to an extent, that's a bit of a shame, as in the early running, there's evidence that some of the lessons of the previous films had been learned. The outdoor shots of Yosemite and the Mojave Desert locations that's used for Nimbus 3 look pretty good, and it lends some authenticity to a franchise that's not exactly been teeming with it. Initially, at least, the cast again show the mix of camaraderie and needling, particularly in the Kirk McCoy Spock trifecta, and it's difficult not to like that. Mm -hmm. um, however, I have a feeling that Lawrence Luckinbill was cast primarily on his physical resemblance to their first choice, Sean Connery, um, but again, in the early running, he's crafting a very different and quite interesting antagonist. In fact, throughout the piece, I've no real complaint with his performance, but rather the writing, as it's in no way clear why having some dude essentially say, they're there, it's alright, <laughs> would make him worthy of becoming an instantly convincing as a leader the way the script lies on it's daft really daft and i might have let that slide if it were the daftest thing in the film but it's not the final act just lacks all credibility from the ten thousand feet view it makes a sort of sense but the actuality of it is such a dreadful effects boondoggle that it just really kills it however the worst worst of all of it is that when you hear Shatner's vision for it, it wouldn't actually be any better. A shade less embarrassing, but the main flaws to this are structural, not cosmetic. Science fiction's taken several cracks at dealing with religion, and I can't really think of any offhand that's been particularly successful at it. Of all the vehicles to examine it, though, there's scarcely a less suitable vessel than Star Trek. After all, it wasn't until Deep Space Nine that there was any attempt at characterization of aliens at all, apart from the hat that their species wear, <laughs> as we discussed earlier. Let alone having any sort of character that's complex enough to start talking about their 
foundational beliefs one way or the other. I've never held this film in quite as terrible a regard as most other people do. I think in part because the first half of the film's okay, and mainly because I welcome Shatner's attempt at tackling something a little more ambitious than the franchise mm. had shot for so far. I mean, he's missed by a mile, quite <laughs> obviously, but yes. he deserves a little credit for trying. Yeah, so, I mean, that partial defence aside, it's by no means a film I could commend to a casual observer. It's not one I could, in all honesty, recommend to a Star Trek fan. Hell, I'm not even sure I'd recommend it to a fan of this film. <laughs> but, yes, your mileage may vary, but, yeah, I probably body swear of this one. Yes, you say you don't have quite the same sort of level of hatred or dislike, whatever, um, versus yeah. other people. So allow me... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's maybe um, overstating it somewhat but this film for me is just is one that I quite enjoy disliking it's the motion picture is just too dull to care about this is entertainingly stupid and wrong enough to get my, <laughs> let me get my teeth into it a little I've just got so many problems with this film and yes like you say the idea of tackling religion which even given several years much in Deep Space Nine they still didn't do so well struggle very much in this film I don't know. Yeah, some interesting ideas in there. I wouldn't say um, so much a missed opportunity because missed might suggest there was ever a chance of hitting what they're aiming for here and I don't think that was the case. But yeah, we come back to problems again. You've mentioned, and we mentioned the other films of uh, Planet of the Hats because a lot of the beginning of this is predicated mm. on the fact that all Vulcans are exactly the same and they're all logical, which <laughs> always bothered yes. me. Um, yeah. n- not even just like the way we were talking about with Klingons earlier, but the fact that all that all that logic stuff doesn't make sense and it's also never been consistently written um, because yeah. a lot of the time they're doing things that are clearly not logical or clearly emotional. So there's that. That's a problem to begin with. And that's part of like the schism of Cyborg and the Vulcans. There's also the problem that Cyborg sounds like a robotic antelope. And I... <laughs> Once that idea came into my head, I could not shift that idea for love nor money. <laughs> and to be fair, would make for a much better film. <laughs> yes. The issue with like quite how Cyborg becomes Nuevo Jesus, um, <laughs> not so much because of philosophy, but because of rich tea and sympathy. It's, <laughs> it, everything is so very underwritten about this film. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it starts off really promisingly too because... Yes, well, there are some wide shots that are Yosemite. The rest, if it's not a, lo- a set, I think, or it's all location. But it feels yeah. different. It feels like outdoors, and it just it does feel different from like the usual rubbery sets they have. And when you have those character-building moments, and just like, even not the character changes so much, but the scenes with Bones and Kirk and Spock sitting around a campfire and things, yeah, that's really entertaining, and... I think you get the feeling that by this point, a lot of the antipathy that was famously there between particularly Shatner and um, Nimoy um, has gone a lot. Um, hmm. Certainly, there was never the edge there, much like in Red Dwarf when you had um, Chris Barry and Craig Charles hated each other at first, and that eventually that antipathy went away. Yeah, And there's something more relaxed about those scenes and that I think it reflects true life, but also makes those scenes more entertaining and believable. So those male character pieces are fun. And then the bits with like Chekhov pretending it's in a storm and stuff. So it starts off really promisingly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's forgettable, but it's it's nice, mildly entertaining, quite funny, I guess. And then I'm not quite sure which way this around was filmed, but they have those big spotlights to 
because it saves them actually having to cart the props for a shuttlecraft down onto um, the set. And it's like they looked at that and thought, these big spotlights we're using to pretend there's a shuttlecraft there. That would work just as well as a god, right? <laughs> it's like you mentioned it. Basically, god is a big spotlight on a stick um, at the end. Yeah, to be fair, very much a backup plan. Another one where they just ran out of money. Mm-hmm. And the, the original stuff was going to be a little bit more impressive from what it sounds like, but it still just would have been fancier graphics. It still wouldn't have made a lot of sense in terms of the story arc of it. Yeah, it's it still would have basically been, as you say, Shatner coming to God and punching him and going away. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I think the problem there too is it's a lot of problems with any sort of big alien concepts is to try and find a way to deliver that without making people just laugh out loud. Yeah, um, or disappoint people is very difficult. When you look at things like signs or Mama, when you can completely ruin a film with um, bad choices in that sort of regard. Yeah. How you do some sort of godlike creature without using just straight up stereotypes or archetypes um, yeah. is is difficult. Okay. And then some of it, I don't know if it's simply a case of lack of budget though, or just, I think maybe it's a lack of expertise because I know, yes, because foolish people talk about Star Wars as being a science fiction film, which of course it isn't. It's a fantasy film. Um, mm. Just because it has spaceships doesn't mean it's science fiction. But there are, between these two series, sometimes there are bits with certain ideas or places overlap. And I'm thinking here about the cantina in Mos Eisley, because some of this planet Nimbus 3 makes me think of Tatooine. And then I think in 1977... The cantina in Star Wars looked like a real place. It was a set, but the way it was filmed looked like a real place. The light was right, and it was lively. Okay, it was full of puppets. It was this lively place, and you felt there was some bad things potentially going on there. The equivalent place in Star Trek V clearly is a soundstage. It's lit like television, um, not film, so it, it feels so artificial and it takes you out of the film immediately and that's an ability thing i think not a budget thing and also it's against because comparisons always there in my head the cantina was this lively place full of people and the chatting and stuff and this place in Nimbus three has about four and a half people two tables and the world's worst dancer <laughs> who um this cat alien erotic dancer who basically just sort of moves her hands from side to side a wee bit <laughs> there's no richness there so i don't know see i don't think i really don't think that's budget i think that's ability now whether that's shatner's ability because he's not exactly well versed in feature film direction i don't know but it's it's got lofty aims but really doesn't have either the money or the skill to get even close to them and yeah, then it's so massively let down by the the fact that Robo Antelope says they're there, like you say, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly he's got a whole bunch of disciples who are going against years of training and the fact that they're betraying their friends. Yeah. So weak. Yeah, this is not one I would recommend anybody watch. I mean, if you wanted to watch another Star Trek film, I would certainly put it as ahead of the motion picture because you can at least enjoy it in a sort of 
hate watch sort of way as opposed to just being <laughs> bored to death but it's not good no no partial credit for trying and if if this had went through a few more script revisions by someone not someone who wasn't William Shatner you know maybe it would have been a bit more sensible at the end of the day but yeah the final product this one not really worth looking at does the final outing for the full cast hold any more water these days how is the sixth outing the undiscovered country oh yes the final ish of the original series cast films sees Nicholas Meyer return to writing and directing duties and for somebody who never liked Star Trek and never seen it, he's got quite a strong connection with it. Yeah. Uh, yes, here he directs The Undiscovered Country, the title of which is a reference to a line in Hamlet and was in fact the title that Meyer wanted to give to the Wrath of Khan and which was changed without his knowledge during the editing process. He finally got to use his title here, but in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country is, of course, the future rather than death as it was in Hamlet and would have been in Khan. In an unapologetically unsubtle allegory of the ending of the Cold War, with the Federation being the good old US of A and the Klingons those damn Ruskies, we find the Klingon Empire in its decline, internal strife and environmental cataclysm bringing the famed warmongers to their knees and rendering them unable to continue their belligerent behaviours. The Klingon's forward-looking leader, Chancellor Gorbachev, uh, okay, Gorkon, but really, they weren't even trying <laughs> Uh, something which Nicholas Meyer has readily admitted, sees which way the wind is blowing and sues the Federation for peace and tries to assure a future for his people. Alas, certain members of his government and that of the Federation can't let go of the past and Gorkon is assassinated to ensure that peace never comes to pass. The Soviet Premier's death is pinned on one James Tiberius Kirk, whose own logs, in which he declares his never-dying hatred of the Klingons, as well as blaming them for the death of his son, are used against him in a show trial, and he is sentenced to life imprisonment on Rurapente, where life is expected to be, for Kirk, about a week. Fortunately, Kirk is busted out by his loyal crew, and together they travel at top narrative speed to Camp Kittimer to unmask the identity of the conspirators, save the life of the Federation president, preserve the peace treaty, and, if they have the time, clear their names. Now, by 1991, and this sixth film, these were well-worn, comfortable roles for the core cast, and they are definitely not in their best form, but they're not phoning it in either. They just seem to have gotten into a groove, really, and aren't being forced out of it. Interest, therefore, comes instead from the new characters, most notably our pre-sex in the city Cam Cattrall, Cam Cattrall? Kim Cattrall even, as a duplicitous Vulcan, David Warner is Mikhail Gorbachev, Warner brings gravitas and worthiness to his role as the erstwhile architect of the future, but is sadly, if necessarily, only in the opening portions of the film, and an energetic, enthusiastic, and really too good for this sort of thing Christopher Plummer as the Shakespeare-quoting General Chang. One of the main themes of Star Trek sex is change and resistance to it, appropriate since, as I mentioned, the main actors, while not doing anything particularly badly, definitely don't seem interested in doing anything new. And this seemed a particularly appropriate film in which to bring the journey of this particular group to an end. And it's good that they were allowed to go out on a relative high note. And it's not like any of them would be want to carry on anyway, right? Uh, or that in as little as three years, some of them would be back again. Right? Right? Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Very much 
a product of its time and mirroring the big political changes that were happening in the um, late 80s, early 90s. It's one of the better ones for sure. Um, I think the idea that the even-numbered Star Trek films are better than the odd numbers holds largely true, especially for the first six films. And this, for me, is probably the second best of these films we're talking about today. Yes, it really is helped by the fact you have somebody like Christopher Plummer who's potentially, you could say, he's chewing the scenery at some points, but he's having fun with the words and the constant references to Shakespeare and things. And it's just the dialogue in this film is quite different from most of the things that have gone before. It's got a wee bit of a, a mystery going on through it too, which changes things a little from the usual Star Trek norm. And it's yeah, it's competently made and interesting. The big problem is that, yes, the cast, or the main cast members never get out of their comfort zone and I would have liked to have just seen them stretched a little particularly given it was their last time together other than that though it's an entertaining film definitely one of the best of the series and it's the one I would very much urge people to watch after Wrath of Khan if they wanted to continue yeah I, I theoretically like this film in as much as when you sort of distill it down to its elements there's got a lot of things there that I really should or at least I think that I would like uh-huh. but it just never hangs together all that well for me this film I've never really liked it uh, part of it is as you're saying about the performances it's for a film that's trying to play at a very high stakes table there's just no sense of risk or danger in this You even when Kirk and McCoy are surrounded by like a planet full of their most deadly enemies it's like there is no danger in this film whatsoever <laughs> you, 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 nothing's going to happen to these guys and I, I do not know what the creative process was behind having Christopher Plummer just belch out Shakespeare quotes <laughs> at random. But if it was some attempt at grafting some meaning onto this, it does not work for me at all. I mean, there's less to complain about, certainly, compared to the last film. Uh, the effects works rather more reined in in terms of quantity. It allows for an increase in quality of them. And although it's not like it could have got much worse, it, in general the performances are fine, but I just do not like the dialogue that Plummer's been saddled with, which in turn means that I don't like Plummer's character. So That's a problem. Can, yeah, for me, I, I just found it daft but entertaining. But if, uh, if it doesn't do it for you, then uh, yes, it so much hinges on that. Yeah, I find it daft, but daft. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I've always just been left a little cold by it. I, I think it's because it's taken influences from genres or you know, perhaps subgenres I'm quite fond of. It does feel a bit like Len Dayton rewriting The Hunt for Red October at points. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't treat those genres with any respect at all, as though this silly space nonsense was inherently a more worthy genre, which is a ludicrous inversion of reality. Look, by any standard, it's a better film than The Motion Picture and The Final Frontier and The Search for Spock, but, well, I just don't like it that much, so uh, I've no concrete reasons for it other than I just don't like what Christopher Plummer's doing and he does so much in this film that it's difficult to care much about it. If you're not on board with the direction he's chosen to go in, then this film's a bit of a pain in the ass. And yeah, for me, it falls into my broad don't recommend the bucket, which actually puts more into that bucket than into the would watch bucket. So <laughs> I don't know, my, my opinions on the Star Trek films is a, is a gestalt sort of changes over the time. I, I, for a while, I was quite hardcore in thinking that actually only two is any good whatsoever <laughs> and the rest of them are, are just not worth the bother. Um, and you know, when I watched through them, more recently, I think I can find things in most of them that I, I can appreciate on some level. There's not really any film here that I just despise. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, I find it tough to recommend an awful lot of them. I think, for me, 
I'd still recommend Wrath of Khan to anyone, and I'd probably recommend Four as a, a light-hearted roustabout comedy. Uh, the rest of them, I think, are only worth watching if you've seen those two and are on board with what they're trying to do here. Then maybe go back and take a look at the, the rest of the films, but uh, those two stand out for me, and the rest of the other four of them, I think, are skippable. Yeah, for me, obviously, be two, then six, then four, and more or less avoid the other three. I think Han stands out as being the one that stands apart enough as a film in its own right rather than being measured against Star Trek films. Yeah, um, yeah. The others all have to really be measured in levels of Star Trek, whereas that's a good film. Yeah. Okay, so that for now, I think, will bring us to the end of Star Trek Scotland, won't it? Uh, yes, we'll be back at some point in the not-too-distant future, I guess, where we'll talk about some of the next-generation films and possibly even some of the newer ones, the rebooted franchise, but uh, I think that's probably enough for you to be getting on with. Yes, and really, we don't want to have to start talking about Star Trek in this direction right now. I don't think we could stand it. <laughs> no, that would be a depressing experience for everybody, including the people that made it, I take it. Mm-hmm. But yes, we'll be back at some point with a, another look at some more Star Trek, because, yes, as I mentioned, there simply isn't enough of it on the internet already. So, but until that time, you all better take care of yourself and each other. I have been Scott Morris, and Luke Havendale has been Luke Havendale. Undeniably true. Goodbye. Goodbye.